Hello, and welcome to the Silver King's War. I'm Michael Sievers, the writer, producer, and creator of this podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Today we continue in the review of Stanley's War. It's early 1942. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor at Oahu, and America has entered the Second World War. America and its allies fought two wars. There was first the European Theater of Operations, known as the ETO, and then the Pacific Theater. And as 1942 begins, the response to the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor with a fury that engulfs the nation's capital. That fury produces Executive Order 9066. 9066 was a United States presidential executive order signed and issued during World War II by the President Franklin Delano Roosevelt on February 19, 1942. This order authorized the Secretary of War to prescribe certain areas in military zones, clearing the way for the incarceration of almost 120,000 Japanese Americans during the war. Two-thirds of those people were American citizens who were born and raised in the United States. Executive Order 9066 meant that more Americans of Asian descent were forcibly interned than Americans of European descent, both in total and as a share of America's populations. Those German and Italian Americans who were sent to internment camps during the war were sent under the provisions of the Presidential Proclamation 2526 and the Alien Enemy Act, part of the Alien and Sedition Act of 1796. This is how Executive Order 9066 began. Quote, Now, therefore, by virtue of the authority vested in me as President of the United States and Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I hereby authorize and direct the Secretary of War and the military commanders whom he may from time to time designate whenever he or any designated commander deems such action necessary or desirable to prescribe military areas in such places and of such extent as he or the appropriate military commander may determine from which any or all persons may be excluded, and with respect to which the right of any person to enter, remain in, or leave shall be subject to whatever restrictions the Secretary of War or the appropriate military commander may impose in his discretion. 
The Secretary of War is hereby authorized to provide to residents of any such area who are excluded therefrom such transportation, food, shelter, and other accommodations as may be necessary in the judgment of the Secretary of War or the said military commanders, and until other arrangements are made to accomplish the purpose of this order, the designation of military areas in any region or locality shall supersede designations of prohibited and restricted areas by the Attorney General under the proclamations of December 7th and 8th, 1941, and shall supersede the responsibility and authority of the Attorney General under the said proclamations in respect of such prohibited and restricted areas. Close quote. The jarring spectacle of thousands of Japanese-American families from Seattle to San Diego being forced from their homes, being required to sell their properties, being subject to the most amazing and deep hatred and resentment by their fellow Americans was just the start of years of frustration and concern about America at war and whether or not America would survive as a democracy and how the country, the nation, would remain safe from possible enemies who were operating on its shores and within its mainland. The subject of stories, movies, books, and family histories that resonate to this day. And as America's arsenal of democracy continued to produce the war machinery that would be shipped to Europe and the Pacific to help America's fighting men and women keep the world safe for democracy, Glenn Martin's B-26 was proving to be an important part of those early days. The B-26 was among the first of American forces that were shipped out after Pearl Harbor. The 22nd Bombardment Group was immediately ordered to the Pacific from the American coast, and it arrived in Australia with 44 B-26 planes in late February of 1942. The Army Air Corps' Martin Marauders flew missions throughout the Pacific that included actions at Midway and in the Aleutians. And through these missions, planes were modified to reflect the changes necessary to keep them operating. The B-26 B and C models included more armor protection, torpedo racks, and more machine guns, including twin tail guns, waist guns on both sides, and most notably, more guns in the forward part of the ship. As Glenn Martin's marauders went to war, Stanley considered his options for 
entering his war, and he decided by mid-1942 to join the Enlisted Reserve Corps. He wanted to fly. He didn't want to fight in a ground war, and he thought that being a pilot in the Air Corps was how he wanted to serve his country. As Stanley was considering his options for the war, the U.S. Army Air Corps asked John Steinbeck to write a story of an American bomber team, and that became a novel called Bombs Away, which was published by Paragon House in 1942 and described by the publisher this way. After visiting the training camps and flying fields of the Air Force, Steinbeck began writing his account of a six-member team, creating characters from the airmen he met and spoke with gives a true-to-life picture of the Air Force's rigorous training programs. Part recruit manual, part dramatic narrative, Bombs Away details the education and practice, individual personalities, and teamwork that go into the making of a bomber crew. Vintage Steinbeck, Bombs Away is a unique slice of history in the hands of one of America's most acclaimed writers. I don't know if our hero, the Silver King, read Bombs Away, but I did read it. I enjoyed it. It's a very small book, simple in its approach, homespun in a way that would attract young men to the idea that serving in the United States Army Air Corps be important in a valiant way to keep the nation safe for democracy. Stanley's solution to the draft was his decision to join the Enlisted Reserve Corps. And he did that on June 18, 1942, in Birmingham, Alabama. His paperwork was simple, and it read from the Aviation Cadet Examining Board in Room 29 of the Federal Building in Birmingham, Alabama. Quote, I certify that Stanley Lester Silverfield, 14,103,064, enlisted this 18th day of June, 1942, as a member of the Air Force Enlisted Reserve. End quote. Signed by James W.C. Myrie, First Lieutenant Infantry, President, Aviation Cadet Board. Stanley's enlistment with the Air Force Reserve Corps meant that he would appear for shipment to basic training at the Air Corps Classification Center just after the new year in 1943. Stanley's summer of 1942 continued to be filled with his work in the family scrap business and his chances to play hardball throughout the late afternoons and evenings in the humid summer of Birmingham. And as our hero prepared for his war, another young man, of the same age, 
named Joseph Heller enlisted in the Air Corps. And he wrote about it this way. When I enlisted in the Army Air Corps on the 19th of October, 1942, I was 19 years old. Four of us, all from Coney Island, went to enlist at the same time. We went down to Grand Central Station and spent almost a whole day filling out forms. There was a long medical examination. We were inducted right there. Somebody said something, and you nodded, and you took a step forward, and you were in the Army. Ten or fifteen days later, we had to report back to Penn Station, and we took a train out to Camp Upton on Long Island. Then we went to Miami Beach, where the Air Corps had taken over almost every hotel. Then we got on the train again, and it must have been eight, ten, or twelve days to Lowry Field in Denver, a huge training center. I love Denver. It was winter, but it was a beautiful winter, the kind of winter you never see in New York. This was my first time out of New York, except for maybe one trip to New Jersey as a kid. That was part of the excitement of it, the adventure. Also, there was a feeling that you were doing something that was socially approved and esteemed. In Denver, and then wherever I went, there was always a list of families that wanted to have servicemen for dinner. They didn't care if you were from Coney Island. They didn't care if you were Jewish. They might have cared if you were black. Well, they might have cared if you were Jewish, too. One of the things that surprised me was how courteous and generally how warm-hearted people are outside New York. There's an affection and an optimism that New Yorkers are not accustomed to, and there's also a very slow service in luncheonettes. Toward the end of my training, I was told that they wanted aviation cadets, so I took a few intelligence tests and passed, and I was classified a bombardier and went to bombardier school. After that, I was commissioned a second lieutenant, given a furlough, and came home a hero in my aviation cap. I have photographs of me. I look like I'm six. Heller and the Silver King were 19. Their photos revealed them to be very young men. They became decorated bombardiers and came home from the war. Joseph Heller wrote Catch-22 and Closing Time. Stanley married Shirley June Gordon in Chicago in 1946 and became a successful beauty supply salesman. In late November of 1942, the Silverfields received a letter from the headquarters of the Aviation Cadet Examining Board in Birmingham, Alabama, dated November 26th. You are to be present at the Army Show Tuesday evening, December 1st at 8.30 o'clock in the City Auditorium, Birmingham, Alabama. You will take your seat in the first section down in the front in the middle section of the main floor. You may bring as many of your friends as you wish, and they may sit with you. We will be glad to have your parents, aunts, and uncles come but do not ask the older people to sit down front with you. When the band plays the Army Air Corps song, 
You will all rise, your friends, too, and remain standing until the band has finished playing this number. The Army Show will be a wonderful opportunity to hear Pierre Huss, famous nationally known foreign correspondent who was attached to Hitler's staff of correspondence for eight years. He followed the German army into Austria, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Denmark, Norway, the Netherlands, Belgium, and France. He is now a private in the Army of the United States at Fort McClellan. He is a marvelous speaker and has a dynamic personality. The Fort McClellan band will play. The marching chorus will sing. Lieutenant Bedman will check the list of those present after you are seated. Be present on time, 8.30, Tuesday evening, December 1st, City Auditorium, Birmingham, Alabama. And keep applying. Signed, James W.C. Myrie, 1st Lieutenant Infantry, President of the Aviation Cadet Examining Board. As the Silverfield family prepared for the Army show on December 1st, B-26 Martin Marauders were part of invasion force that hit North Africa in November of 1942. And in the December 5th, 1942 issue of the New Yorker magazine, the famed writer Alva Johnston wrote this about Glenn Martin, the man who built the B-26. By 1912, Glenn L. Martin was one of the leading exhibition flyers in America. In that year, he carried off prizes by the dozen and broke records by the score. For the first time in the history of the world is the standard beginning in a scrapbook sensational newspaper accounts of his exploits in that year. These feverish archives tell how the 26-year-old flyer was the first to deliver mail by plane, the first to deliver newspapers by plane, first to drop a baseball into a kitcher's mitt by plane, first to toss a bouquet into a May Queen's lap by plane, first to bomb a sham fort by plane. Martin produced the first of his bombers in July 1918, six months after he got the order, an unprecedented achievement. It was a twin-motor biplane carrying a bomb load of 1,500 pounds, the pioneer of the type which in 1921 sank a battleship, cruiser, destroyer, and several submarines in General Billy Mitchell's experiment off the Virginia Capes. Two years later, in December 1944, Stanley was flying as a lead bombardier in a B-26, in the nose, in the greenhouse, with his bombardment group out of A-72, north of Paris. And with the arrival of December 1942, we have reached the end of this episode of a review of Stanley's War. And you are listening to The Silver King's War.